This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. As vote counting continues in Israeli's unprecedented repeat general election, exit poll projections can't seem to predict an outright winner. The worsening climate crisis is one of the worst concerning emerging global threats to children. In economics, Chinese telecom giant Huawei will reveal what could be the world's smartest 5G phone. And in sport, more than 1,900 athletes from 209 countries will be in action at this month's World Athletics Championships. But right now, let's cross on over to the news. Here's Jualani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Breakaway Mozambique rebels have threatened to step up violence if if campaigning uh, is not suspended for upcoming elections. This is the first after a landmark peace deal as they claim responsibility for two recent attacks. The country is gearing up for October 15 polls following the completion of a historic treaty last month between the government and former rebel group Renamo, now the main opposition party. The deal requires Renamo fighters to either return to civilian life with financial help or join the police and army. More than 5,000 members are required to surrender their weapons. Tanzania has refuted allegations of harboring an Ebola case in the country. It detailed this formally in a statement informing the World Health Organization that it conducted investigations on suspicious cases and ruled out the deadly virus. There were reports earlier that one person had died from Ebola and other people had been infected with the virus. The suspicion of Ebola in Tanzania had been fueled by a woman who died there earlier this month from an unknown illness following Ebola-like symptoms. Striking doctors in Zimbabwe have marched to Parliament to protest uh, the disappearance of the union leader and press the government to increase their pay after a court ruled that police should not interfere with the march. Police had blocked previous attempts by the doctors to march to President Emerson Nangagwa's offices and to Parliament to present petitions after the leader of the Zimbabwe Hospital's Doctors Association, Peter Mangobei, went missing. The doctors have been on strike since September, demanding a further pay increase as living costs soar. The, num- the leader of Israel's centrist Blue and White Alliance, Benny Gantz, says he wants to form a unity government that's led by him. After another poll ended in deadlock for the second time, Gantz did not respond directly to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's offer of a joint unity administration with his Lukid party. The BBC's Tom Bateman says the efforts to form a government will involve Israel's president. 
The role of the Israeli president, Reuven Rivlin, is that he has to select any Israeli MP, actually, that he believes has the best possible chance of building a majority government. Now, that obviously tends to be one of the leaders of the big party. So in this case, either Mr. Netanyahu or uh, Mr. Gantz. But they're the only restrictions he has on who he selects. So there is a bit of a psychodrama in all of this, because it's about out of those two leaders who can put themselves in front of the president and say, well, ask me to form a coalition first. And finally, Japanese residents affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster eight years ago have called for an appeal of a court verdict which cleared three power company executives of negligence. In the only criminal case brought over the incident, the court said the executives couldn't have foreseen the scale of the earthquake and tsunami that hit the power plant. Tens of thousands were forced to evacuate surrounding areas and radioactive material was leaked into the atmosphere and the ocean. Concerns remain about radioactive water that could still leak from the facility. I'll be back with headlines at 5.30. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. As vote counting continues in Israeli's unprecedented repeat general election, exit poll projections have showed that the country's longest-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and former military chief Benny Gantz are locked in a tight race. With more than 97% of the vote having been counted, the right-wing Blue and White Party, led by Gantz, had 33 seats earlier, while Netanyahu's Likud Party was behind with 31. Earlier, Netanyahu called on Gantz to join him in a broad unity coalition after he said there was no chance he could form a right-wing government after the deadlock. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Israeli journalist Danny Abebe, who says negotiations are already underway to try and form a government. What's going to happen, we don't have any idea. For now, we know one very important thing. Netanyahu terms done. Netanyahu, as a prime minister, is last term. And But <laughs> I can't say who uh, is going to be next prime minister of the state of Israel. And um, we're talking about between the difference between left wing and the right wing. If you remember, Netanyahu came from very strong, extremely left wing, uh, right wing, and right wing generally, right wing parties, all of them, they lost this election for left wing. And now um, we know the white and the blue party, new party of Benny Gantz, they got uh, 32 mandats and Netanyahu got 31 mandats. It's a huge difference in Israeli politics. And in the next term, should, I mean, the next term, uh, the negotiation between two uh, bigger parties, I mean, uh, Likud and Blue and White, should be uh, soon. But in the first, all of them, two of them, I mean, two leaders must go to Israeli president to, to start any negotiation between them. Now, you attended a press conference a short while ago hosted by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What did he say with regards to the process? The process will t- take at least three months from now. And uh, Netanyahu, he, he still sees himself as a prime minister. He said, yes, I lost my, I mean, the mandate from Israeli public, but I'm still prime minister. 
he would like to call, he would like uh, love to go with Benny Gantz at the unity government. I mean, two years Prime Minister Netanyahu and another two years Benny Gantz as a Prime Minister. The question is, who is going to be the first Prime Minister? It's a big question in Israeli politics. Do we know if uh, Benny Gantz said anything with regards to this uh, statement by Benjamin Netanyahu hinting at a rotation agreement for the premiership with uh, the blue and white leader? No, he didn't. Uh, he's going to say something at 2 o'clock in uh, local time, Israel times, next two hours in South African time. We'll see what he's going to say. I don't think so. any, you know, he was really clear. He, he didn't want Netanyahu as, uh, as a prime minister in unit of uh, government. I don't think so. he changed his mind. He still believe he, um, he can do something which left-wing uh, parties, which out Netanyahu and the Likud party. But and the data, real, uh, real data now in Israeli politics in the, on the map, I don't think so. I can't see any opportunity. He can do something. But, you know, politics is politics, specifically in, in particular in Israeli politics. Now, what does the Benny Gantz party, the blue and white party, stand for in terms of the body politic of Israel? Yeah, definitely. But he has a lot of problems, to be honest. I mean, Benny Gantz. Because half of the party of Benny Gantz, blue and white, uh, many of them, specifically in the second one, Benny, uh, Yair Lapid, he was really clear about Haredim extra-Orthodox parties. He said... We don't want to share with them. What does it mean for, I mean, without Haredim, Benny Gantz, he hasn't any opportunity to, to build something, to, to do something without Haredim extra-Orthodox parties. Sure. We're talking about at least 20-something seater. It's a lot for Israeli politics. And in Arab parties, Israeli Arab parties, left-wing, they got uh, 12 cities. Cities and this is, I mean, it is very, very, very complicated time for Israeli politics. We don't know exactly who is going to be next Israeli prime minister next three months. Now, who is likely to be a kingmaker here, uh, Mr. Abrebe? Some say Avigdor Lieberman hosts Israel yes, Beitenu Party. He has, right of course, now, reiterated his support for a broad liberal unity government, which would include Israel Beitenu Likud, as well as Kahol Lavan. Do you yeah. see him as a possible kingmaker? Definitely. I mean, right now, this moment, if you're asking me who is the real Israeli prime minister, his name Avigdor Lieberman. Avigdor Lieberman holds all of them, and he got eight seats in Israeli Knesset, uh, Knesset right now. We don't know exactly if he say he. I mean, he cleared before. I think two days ago, I met him. He said, "I don't want seat which uh, Haredim party. I mean, uh, the extra Orthodox party, and I don't want also." an Arab, very strong, extremely left-wing uh, party like an Israeli Arab party. What does it mean? He said, we must go to unity government, which uh, Likud, Netanyahu, and Benny Gantz, uh, probably another uh, non-Orthodox uh, party. And that's Israeli journalist Danny Abebe on the line from Jerusalem talking to Kumbelo Munzelele.
A huge fire at a Liberian Quranic school killed at least 26 pupils and two teachers when flames engulfed their dormitory in one of the worst disasters of its kind for the West African Union, for the West African nation, excuse me. President George Weah visited the site on the outskirts of the capital Monrovia and said the cause was still unknown. The fire is believed to have broken out in the early hours of yesterday morning when Quranic school students were sleeping in a building near the mosque. Liberian journalist Joel Brooks has more. The latest information just gathered was that the, the fire yesterday that took the lives of 28 persons plus two instruct, instructional staff of the institution uh, was the cause of uh, uh, electrical fault uh, from the investigation gathered. Uh, right now, the entire country is, is mourning right now because uh, uh, the president was there yesterday and he he, he, was, he appeared so side of the incident. It was terrible yesterday. Mm-hmm. Do we know at this stage, Joel, if uh, there are pupils that are still missing or have they all been accounted for and how many students were living in this dormitory? Well, uh, According to a report, there was there was some 35 students, but 28 got burned completely alone with uh, two instructional staff. In fact, one of the the imam, the imam wife, also lived in the fire because she had her children in there and she was trying to go there to rescue the children, and she also got caught up. There's another lady who I understand was also going in with a baby on her back trying to get. Her son, and she also got cut up. So it was disastrous, seriously. What has been the response, or rather the reaction, of government in terms of ensuring that something like this doesn't happen again? Well, from what the president said yesterday, investigation has been launched already. People are people are still surmising that perhaps uh, the issue of the fire yesterday was the, the cause of uh, electrical fault, but it has not really officially been said by the investigator. The president has already for an immediate investigation into the cause of the fire yesterday. Even though he promised to rebuild, but that's not the issue right now. The issue is that people want to know what really went wrong because uh, Mm. for 28 percent to just die completely without anything, you know. I mean, there was nothing like Iron Gate because I visited the site. There was this uh, just ordinary door that you could bust through. But then the poor just got, I mean, they just died like that, mm, you know. Mm, mo- mm. Mo- most of them are children. Uh, 75% of those who died were children. Like I mm. said, the imam of the mosque where the school was being held lost his wife. His wife went in there to rescue his daughter and then uh, she, she left in, 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 in the cell. You know? So, I mean, is unbearable. Yeah. yeah, you've also mentioned, of course, and rightfully so, that this is quite a, a sad situation, and that uh, the country is in mourning as a result of of this um, um, unfortunate uh, fire that uh, killed so many people. Has there been any word from government, Joel, at this stage around um, official proceedings or memorial around uh, the mourning that's taking place? Well, uh, most of the talk show this morning complained, callers complained as to why the government did not. Declare a day of money, especially with the loss of several lives. You know, a lot of people was on radio station, local radio station, asking the government why the government did not declare a day of money. Even though the president said he's siding for the situation, but then the, the people are saying the government need to do beyond that because people lost their lives, uh, 28 persons lost their lives. The government should declare day of money, but nothing has been done from the end of the government. Thank you so much. And that was Joel Cholo Brooks, Chief Executive Officer of Liberia's news agency, the Global News Network, on the line from the capital Monrovia, talking to Zikona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story.
What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Executive Director for United Nations Women, Pumzile Mlambongnuka, says she has assembled a team of experts to assist the South African government in their fight against the scourge of violence on women and children. She says she's pleased with President Cyril Ramaphosa's action, uh, the plan where millions of U.S. dollars have been allocated for the plan. Namabulani reports from New York. Pumzile Mlambongnuka, the Executive Director of UN Women, says she's pleased with the South African government's response to the scourge of violence on women and children. On Wednesday, in a joint parliamentary sitting, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced interventions that will be implemented in the fight against violent crimes on women and children. Some of them include training of police officers as well as financially boosting the sexual offences courts. Mlambo Nuga says this is a step in the right direction. I also am happy with the five point plan that is announced because it addresses prevention responses. It also uh, uh, addresses uh, some of the services and uh, I would add the need also for the long-term support that women need when they are there. It's, it's an excellent platform that we have in this speech. We just need people to rally behind and to act us as the UN are standing ready also to support the plan. Mlambo Nuga is offering UN support to government. She says she has a team of specialists which can assist in training and giving expert advice to the stakeholders who will be implementing the action plan. I'm already assembling my team uh, that I've been dying to send to South Africa that is working on police training, which is uh, full of experts from all over the world. We, we're really open for business and we are really keen to make this work. And the toolkit can not only be used by government, the toolkit will be effective if all of us use the toolkit but also bring in additional tools to support the, the toolkit of the government. The UNED says there also needs to be a mindset change in the men of South Africa. She says this fight is not only for women and children. Because I think we still have a situation where women, children and old people are battling rapists and killers by themselves while good men stand out and say, ah, shame. There isn't time for that. They must jump in and be in the fight and be the first ones that are making sure that this fight does not continue. At this point, women, children, old people, disabled people, people of different sexual orientation are just fighting just by themselves. Everyone else is just watching. Mlambo Nuga says while this action plan is only set up for six months, she hopes there's a long-term plan that will be put in place to ensure that the femicide statistics decrease. Noma Bolani at the United Nations in New York.
Six months on from the devastation wreaked by Cyclone Idai, in which more than 1,000 people were killed in Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, some aid agencies are concerned about the mental health and psychosocial needs of communities affected. While recovery is beginning to take hold, they say what often goes unnoticed and unaddressed is the lasting impact on mental health and uh, psychosocial needs. More from Maite Sebastian Moncho of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. March and April this year, we had a cyclone made landfall in the province of Sofala in Mozambique and also in the north of Mozambique. Or what we have is many people that was affected and also 600 people dead, people that were injured and they lost houses, they lost belongings, and they lost everything. Six months after what happened, what we have is still people living in resettlements with no conditions, and people in communities still waiting for the houses to be built or repaired, and difficulties in getting back to life. What are some of the reasons why mental health and psychosocial needs of people are not attended to after such a disaster? First of the problems that we find is that people doesn't know that there exist specialized services or they don't think that they need these services. What we have is people that have suffered a trauma. Sometimes it's not a trauma, but could be. And what they have is difficulties in life because of what happened after a natural disaster. And if they don't have these services, they can develop difficulties getting to life. We are talking about vulnerable people that had chronic illnesses, for example. We are talking about people that had depression, for example, before the emergency. And if they are not identified, if they don't receive or social activities or specialized services, they are going to develop or issues in the future. Is there a way that psychological scars can heal after this? I mean, everyone has the power of healing himself, of course. We are talking about resilience, no? That how to be overcome and get back to life. And not only like getting back to life, with getting back with more, no? With your backpack full of the experience, no? That is going to help you in the future. The problem is that in some cases, you don't receive some attention, you can develop other problems. We are talking about negative coping mechanisms. If you have suffered some stress and you don't identify these signs of stress in you, this is causing more problems. It remains during a period of time. It can have like more effects in the future. Is why we need to identify first these signs of stress in order to come back to the path and start having a healthier life. And how are you as the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies helping people to cope with the emotional impacts of the disaster? The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent is, is working in Mozambique in supporting the, the national society that is Mozambique and Red Cross. We work with our volunteers. What they do, it's first is that normally they are with the people in the communities. They already were there and they know the people and also the problems and how they can help them. In our case, in psychosocial support, we provide psychological first aid that would be the first attention to the people that suffer and or has suffered a crisis, for example, like this natural disaster. We work with them, providing the minimum what they need, this emotional, this psychological support, 
and then we linked to the resources they need. If they need, for example, they are separated from family, we link to our service, for example, restoring family links. If they need, for example, to go to the health center, we accompany them to the health center. But we work also with women, for example, because in, in situations like after a natural disaster, when we have a single woman, for example, or single woman with kids, or elderly, for example, because of this situation, they are more vulnerable, or children alone. What we provide is services tailored for these groups in order them to have services tailored to their needs, providing the information, saying like after a disaster, you can have these signs, no? You can, for example, have difficulties sleeping, or you can be more anxious, for example, mm. or you suddenly you eat more, or you don't eat, for example, or you sleep more than normal, no? This is completely normal after a disaster happens. It is not normal when it's like two months and you still have the same after several weeks after the natural disaster if you have the same symptoms. Before I let you go, how do you manage to carry out your efforts with scarce mental health services in some areas? What we do first is an assessment of which services are available in the different areas. And after this assessment, depending on this assessment, I mean, for example, if we are in an area that we have covered specialized services, then we link to the specialized services. But if we are in an isolated area that is more difficult, what we go is in order to provide this access to the person to specialized services. It means that we will see if there is another organization or if we can provide transportation or if we can also think in another resilience work that could be, for example, strengthening the first attention for example, what we do in communities is like training all the communities or key in the community in order that they can provide the first attention to the people. And that's Maita Sebastian Moncho of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC in Mozambique, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. This time is now 17.25 Central African time. This is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubung, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, 
I am Dana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism, um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen, you see. It was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity. Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka. Every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. The time is now 17.30 Central African Time. Let's cross on over to Shualani Tulo for your latest news headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines. Breakaway Mozambique rebels have threatened to step up violence if campaigning is not suspended for upcoming elections. Striking doctors in Zimbabwe have marched to Parliament to protest the disappearance of their union leader and press the government to increase their pay after a court ruled that police should not interfere with the march. And finally, Tanzania has refuted allegations of harboring an Ebola case in the country. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Nigerian poet Efe Paul Azino is part of the stellar lineup at the annual Poetry Africa Festival taking place in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province from the 7th to the 12th of October next month. 
Celebrating its 23rd edition, the festival features a host of local and international poets at various venues and schools around Durban with opening night and evening sessions at the Elizabeth Sneddon Theatre. Hosted by the University of KwaZulu-Natal's Centre for Creative Arts, the CCA, the event will once again include the ever-popular Durban Slam Jam competition and the festival finale, which showcases all the poets in the festival. More from Sipindi Le Songwa from UKZN CCA. 23rd Photo Africa is taking place in Durban as from the 7th until the 12th of October. It features 16 poets from Africa as well as from the rest of the world. This year we've got a special focus with the Nigerian uh, poets in partnership with Lagos Poetry Festival. So we've got five poets from Nigeria who are participating in the festival. We have Bush Omineni, Isopo Azino, so the festival is going to be in Durban at the Elizabeth Snedden Theatre. And on the first day, we're going to do a special dedication to the festival. We're going to do be at the chairman. The venue is going to be at the chairman. And we're going to be doing Poetry Meets Jazz. It's going to be a jamming session between jazz and poetry. And on a Saturday, which will be the closing night, we'll be at the Beer Hall. Now, tell us about the artists, poets that you feature at the festival. What's the criteria used to, to pick these poets? Um, this year it was quite different. Um, like I mentioned earlier, through the exchange program that we are doing with Nigeria, we have five Nigerians that is normally on a yearly basis. We don't get to have much Nigerians on our program. But this year we have... Basically, because of our relationship that we have with Nigeria, we had to feature those five um, the poets coming from Nigeria. And some other poets, like the Ukraine, because of the relationship, some of the curation comes with the relationships that we have with other countries. We've got a relationship with Ukraine, and we also have a relationship with the Catalonian um, poets as well. So some, they come via partnerships or relationships that we have with other countries and because the city of Durban is a UNESCO city of literature. So we connect with other cities of literature and then we curate poets from their regions. And then we look at as well at poets who have participated in the Poetry Africa Festival, but not in the main line up. And this year we have the Slam Poetry Winner from last year, Black Sash, she's based in Durban. So it's more like a developmental, uh, she's more a developmental stage. So in Puerto Africa, there are many sections that one can participate in. And if you are seeing that the potential and you see that you have grown, then we feature you on the main lineup and give you exposure to, to, to the festival. Now you will be hosting legendary award-winning South African poet Wali Sirote. What will yes. his role be at the festival? Yes, he's a poet laureate um, of South Africa from last year. So he's going to be reading his poem. There's a night where he's going to be allocated, which will be on a Wednesday, that is doing a reading. Um, and also he will be visiting art centers within the township. He is going to be at Crouchville. That's on a Thursday at Antetributuli uh, Museum. He's going to be doing a special reading on that one as well. He hasn't had much, he doesn't have a, a new book to say, but his epic poem called Si Kashele, Si Kashele O'ar, will be published by Quena on the 27th of October, um, but he will be doing readings from his books that he has previously written.
Now tell us about the main takeaway from the festival. What uh, do people attending the festival take away from uh, the festival? It's in its 23rd edition this year. We are hoping with the, the current xenophobic attacks, I think we're hoping that people should take away that, that we, we are united Africa, especially with our partnership with the Nigerians, because the attack mainly has been on Nigerians. And the Nigerians, they actually like, we want to come to Porto Africa as artists. We should be the bridge, you know, uh, in everything and speak our voice. As So I feel like uh, it's, we need to come to a point of uniting as South Africa and also uh, and Nigeria as well. And also, we are also looking at the current GBV uh, incident that just took place with the uh, Uyumene. And, you know, we're going to give women a voice to speak. So there's a dedicated night where just on that night, all the female poets will be on stage. That is a Tuesday uh, of October at the Elizabeth Sneedon Theatre. So we're hoping that people will come to a point of healing during the festival and actually having to deal and be able to deal with the issues that surround us as African or people at large in the world. Tell us about uh, the program. What will be happening? I know you touched on what will happen during the festival, but just to be unpack for us what exactly will be happening. You also have master classes also that will be taking place at the festival. Yes, we do have master classes and workshops as well that are going to be taking place. So mostly in spaces where we are sending our poets, they'll be doing when we send them to school. They'll be doing workshops, creative writing with, with the learners at school. They will be doing performances as well. One master class that we have in partnership with the Kizad and Department of Arts and Culture, we are going to take Poetry to Africa to Richard's Bay. So we're going to be in Richard's Bay on Friday, where we will be doing a workshop on on promoting the, the, the poetry, poetry. And also we're going to be dealing with people who have already published books, how to sell their work to a global audience and how or if I may put it, how to well market the, the work that you're doing for a global uh, audience because they, the department has done a great job where they published books written by poor from that area. So now we need to give them resources or information that would lead them to actually be able to sustain their living through their work that they have done. So that's uh, we're going to be in Richard's Bay in the auditorium hall from uh, 10 until 3 in the afternoon. There's going to be a lot of speed dating happening between our main line-up artists that we've already mentioned with um, poets from Richard's Bay. So it's going to be one-on-one engagement in terms of looking at their work that they've done and how best they can move forward. So that's one thing that we're proud of as a festival, that we're actually working, partnering with other departments or other organizations who've got a similar objective as us. And that's Spindi Lehlongwa. She's with the University of KwaZulu-Natal's Center for Creative Arts on the line talking to Tutongubeni. The worsening climate crisis is one of the most concerning emerging global threats to children. This concern is highlighted in an open letter issued by the Executive Director to the United Nations Children's Fund, Henrietta Four. The letter outlines eight growing challenges for the world's children, which include prolonged conflicts, mental health and online misinformation. On climate change, the letter warns that children are already having to contend with rampant destruction to the planet and a global climate crisis that has the potential to undermine most of the gains made in the child survival and development over the past 30 years. 
UNICEF's Regional Chief of Communications, James Elder, explains. What UNICEF's Executive Director is doing in quite a groundbreaking way, this is a letter that she has written, it's an open letter, essentially for the world's children, and she's looking at eight really big challenge facing the world's children today, and they are prolonged conflicts, the climate crisis, um, a decline in mental health of our youngest people, mass migration and population movements, statelessness, which comes from that migration, and then future skills for future work. What, you know, what do we need to give young people across the continent to make sure they get a good job and can be contributing? And then data rights and privacy and online misinformation. So there's a lot there. It's a real, really groundbreaking letter from UNICEF's executive director um, with big areas that everyone, governments, private sector, young people themselves, can dive into um, as we seek to you know, make this the best possible world for kids. Let's look at climate change. Are the effects of climate change, James, really given enough attention, especially as far as children are concerned? Let's look at um, children in our region and how they are affected by climate change. Is there enough attention paid in that regard? No, sadly, it's a flat, there is not. I mean, this is the first time that you're going to get a global generation of children and they'll grow up in a world that's more dangerous and it's more uncertain as a result of this climate crisis, as a result of um, a degraded environment. Um, You know, and unfortunately, many, many of Africa's poorest and most vulnerable citizens that live in these disaster-prone countries. Um, And these are the groups that are disproportionately affected by shocks and stresses. So, no, there's not enough discussion. There's not enough action um, by governments. There's not enough action by the private sector. Uh, And unfortunately, again, when it comes to home, when it comes to Africa, you know, the continent is warming faster than even the global average. So this has a real impact. This means something. For example, you know, we're going to see more cholera, more meningitis, more malaria. These diseases will spread faster. And again, 90% of these diseases, the burden of them, um, it falls on our younger citizens. It falls on children under the age of five. So in a nutshell, the climate crisis, it threatens reversing so much progress that's been made by countries, by governments, by donors, by mums and dads who have put in the hard yards for their kids um, over these past decades they all risk being reversed. So, no, there's no way we're talking about climate enough. That's what the executive director's letter seeks to do, to raise alarm bells, to explain what's going on, but also to have some practical things about what everyday people can do. Yes, I'm glad you touch on what can be done, practically speaking. What can people start doing to minimise the effects of climate change? Yeah, I think there's a two or three tiered approach and one is what they call this mitigation and mitigation is about reducing the flow of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and I think that's where it becomes important organizations like UNICEF and our executive director come out and speak candidly that governments and business need to work harder and hand in hand to reduce fossil fuel consumption you know and and to invest in renewable energy resources and the general public as long as they're aware of that can put pressure on their elected officials put pressure on the sort of companies that they that they support there's a great line from south africa's own you know archbishop desmond tutu who said people of conscience need to break their ties with corporations financing the injustice of climate change because unfortunately this climate crisis and climate change is very unjust it does hit those who've done the least to impact the climate the hardest 
But look, there are also a lot of things that everyday people can do, and this is really important. Be aware of your emissions, you know, drive and, and fly less, reduce your electricity use. We all want to do that because we want to save money. So turn off those light bulbs, use LEDs, have shorter showers, turn off electrical sockets when they're not in use. Um, other things we can do for middle class people is, is certainly eat less meat. You know, red meat production produces a lot more greenhouse gas and chicken and fruit and vegetables and cereals and so on, and it requires a lot more water. So look to having, you know, a meat-free Monday or one or two days a week where we're not eating meat. Um, reduce, reuse, recycle, have that mantra going on in your brain, and of course conserve water. Now, you know, I live here, so many, so many citizens of Africa are either they use the least water because, because it's not available. But for those people who have plentiful water, use less, collect rainwater. So there's a lot of things people can do. And look, there's, a, there's another climate strike coming up this Friday, which is about young people taking a stand and, and letting, letting the world know that we, you know, we need to demand an end to this excessive use of fossil fuels. So there's a lot going on, but climate change is happening now. So the action needs to happen now. And that's James Alder, Regional Chief of Communications for the United Nations Children's Fund, Eastern and Southern Africa office, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, talking to Jane Rabotata. It's time for your economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgod. Thank you, Samora. Russia has signed an agreement with Uganda to develop the East African country's nuclear energy capacity. Under the deal, which was signed in Vienna, Russia will develop nuclear technology in Uganda to supply its growing energy needs with a focus on industrial, medical and other peaceful uses. Last year, China's National Nuclear Corporation signed a deal with Uganda, which has uranium deposits to help it produce atomic energy for peaceful purposes. South Africa abandoned a controversial deal signed under Jacob Zuma's presidency to spend more than $76 billion on a nuclear energy project with Russia's Russian state-owned company Rosatom. Zimbabwe's largest payment platform, EcoCash, has suspended over 4,000 of its agents, this after allegations that they were charging excessive premiums for customers intending to cash on their mobile phone money. rather. A survey carried out by the Herald newspaper shows that agents are charging a premium of up to 55% to customers. EcoCash is one of Econet's biggest business units. The move by EcoCash comes in light of the Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission having started investigating EcoCash agents. The South African Reserve Bank has decided to keep the repo rate unchanged at 6.5%, meaning that the prime lending rate also remains unchanged at 10%. The bank's Monetary Policy Committee made the decision on the back of a marginal increase in the inflation rate and weak economic activity. Reserve Bank Governor Lesecha Khanyakho says muted growth and escalation in global tensions and higher oil prices remain concerns. He says electricity, food and fuel prices continue to shape the near and medium term trajectory of inflation. The MPC assesses the risk to the growth forecast to be balanced in the near term, but remains concerned about medium term growth and weak employment prospects. Escalation in global trade tensions, further domestic supply constraints, 
and or sustained higher oil prices could generate headwinds to growth. Public central financing needs remain high, exerting pressure on the currency and pushing local bond yields higher relative to country peers. The National Health Workers Union of Liberia says it will on Monday down tools until government meets their concerns. Health workers are demanding an increment of budgetary allotment for the health sector to provide adequate medical and laboratory supplies plus other logistics for health facilities across the country. The union says some health workers have not been paid their monthly salaries and incentives since February this year. It also laments the cost of living, which it says has tripled since 2011. Chinese telecom giant Huawei will reveal what could be the world's smartest 5G phone, the Mate 30. However, its fate hangs on whether customers will buy a device lacking access to software and apps supported by Google. This after U.S. President Donald Trump hit the company with an export ban in May, banning American firms from supplying Huawei, alleging the firm is a national security risk. The world's number two smartphone maker expects the ban to cost a 10 billion U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollars trading at 358.51 Nigerian Naira, 10.71 Botswana Pula, at 102.76 Kenyan Chilean and at 13.14 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.08 Brazilian hail, 64.30 Russian ruble, 71.14 Indian rupee, 7.08 Chinese yuan, and at 14.66 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,499 and platinum at $938 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $64.42 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for your sport. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with athletics news. More than 1,900 athletes from 209 countries will be in action at this month's World Athletics Championships. The International Association of Athletics Federations, IAAF, confirmed 1,928 entries in a provisional list released earlier on Thursday for the event which runs from September the 27th to October the 6th. All 30 of the Diamond League champions have confirmed participation, while 38 individual winners from the London Championships two years ago will defend their titles in Doha. Alison Felix, the World Championships most decorated athlete with 16 medals, was named in the U.S. team for the ninth consecutive time and will feature in the 4x400m relay squad. Men's 100m favorite Christian Coleman and reigning world champion Justin Gatlin were also selected in a 143-member U.S. team. 
In rugby news, the Springboks will carry the image of 1995 hero Chester Williams on their jerseys when they open their Rugby World Cup campaign against the All Blacks in Yokohama on Saturday. Williams, who was a star of the victorious Springbok team that won the 1995 World Cup on home soil, passed away of a suspected heart attack earlier this month. According to the Springboks' official website, Williams' image has been embedded in the, into the playing number on the team's jersey. Stanley Robbenheimer, head coach of South Africa's national women's rugby team, says he is happy with how things are currently in camp ahead of the team's test match against Spain. The two nations meet in a test match at the WJ Devet Stadium in South Africa's Eastern Cape province on Saturday afternoon. This will be the Springbok women's first match since qualifying for the 2021 Rugby World Cup in New Zealand back in August. Spain is currently ranked 9 in the world, while South Africa is in 11th position. Despite the minor difficulties in camp this week, coach Robin Heimer is pleased with how things stand at the moment. Uh, look, I'm very happy. Uh, we had a tough week in terms of training, so... The girls came through it very nicely, so we're looking forward to it. Look, there was a there was a whole day for conditioning, uh, and we had a we were expecting Spain to be very physical, so we had a a, a physical session also in the week. So things that they're not used to, so it was very taxing on the body for for them. But uh, yesterday was a, was a recovery day, so they came through that nicely. So uh, this morning session went well, so I'm it's pleasing. In cycling news, the two intrepid cyclists, Ron Rutland and James Owens, delivered the whistle to be used in the opening match of the Rugby World Cup today, having travelled over 20,000 kilometres in 231 days from London. Um, yeah, amazing to be here. This is incredibly surreal. Um, yeah, we've been on a hell of a journey since we left London, you know, seven months ago. But, you know, for me, this has been it's more than a journey with just Ron and I. We've been we've had this incredible support network. So thanks to everyone who's bought into our journey. It's amazing to have you all out and to track the progress of this whistle. that's had a fair few adventures. The pair who left Twickenham Stadium in February to begin their trip handed the whistle to Welsh referee Nigel Owens, who will be taking charge of tomorrow's clash between hosts Japan and Russia. The journey, which has taken in 27 countries, has aimed to raise awareness and money for charity, Child Fund Pass It Back, which is working in partnership with World Rugby, looking to empower underprivileged children across Asia through the game. They delivered the whistle safe and sound to Nigel Owens in Tokyo Stadium, which will host tomorrow's opening match. And finally in soccer news. Mamelodi Sundowns ladies and Banyana Banyana goalkeeper Andy Letlamini says it is challenging but not difficult to be an active player and coach at the same time. This comes at the back of her appointment as runback ladies coach last week. Letlamini says the team hired her knowing that she has not retired and respect her schedule when she needs to be with Sundowns ladies or South African senior national team. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and
This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. We'll be back at 1900 hours Central African time. For any comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Umsebenz Window.